got into it in this one, folks. Um, I'm joined by Kelsey Swift, and one of the things that you will notice about this and some of the recent ones is that uh, I kind of know Kelsey pretty well by this point, so the conversation I had with her is a little bit more free-flowing, and that's not a good or a bad thing. Well, no, it's a good thing, but the problem is uh, I came into this conversation in in an odd mood, concerned about certain things, and so that... I think, uh, bled into the conversation. Now, whether you think that that is good or bad is up to you as you listen. Uh, We talk a lot about white spaces. We talk about linguistic analysis. We talk about um, public scholarship, really, is really what we're talking about. Uh, Social change. You know, um, what white people say to each other when they're alone. And uh, I think it's probably the most authentic conversation I've had on here, aside from the ones where I'm by myself, because I was just super, super honest in it. I hope you enjoy it, folks. It's going to take you for a bit of a ride. So, folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. I'm JPB Gerald. I am here, as I uh, often am, with a guest. This time it is Kelsey, not Taylor Swift. Um, And she is going to tell us a little bit about what she works on. Like, half the time I do this with people who are already, you know, professors, but sometimes I do it with fellow students, and Kelly Kelly is not her name. Kelsey is one of those such people. So, Kelsey, thanks for joining me. And Tell us a little bit about what you study and think about and write about with your time. Um, Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I am a PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center in Linguistics. Um, I focus on sociolinguistics and applied linguistics, specifically on uh, adult ESL, which is what I worked in before I started grad school and I've worked in in that field off and on throughout grad school. I am mostly interested in right now what, I mean, this is my current project, of what counts as English. So what is the ideological construction of English within the classroom? Um, How are linguistic boundaries set? Uh, Who is talking about English in what ways? How much agreement or disagreement there is from the teachers and the students? Um, And then really what I'm thinking about now is how that connects to historical constructions of English and the way that English teaching has happened over time and the way that English as a language has been thought about. I obviously have a lot to say about that. (laughs) It's all interesting to me. Um, Well, what are some of the things you're finding so far? I mean, I kind of, I mean, I know some of it, but (laughs) for the people, for the 45 to 49 people who tend to listen to (laughs) Um, so this is uh, this project came out of um, three semesters of of classroom observation in a nonprofit here in New York, um, and I sat in on two classes um, taught by separate teachers. And so um, what I saw in those classes was, I mean, a lot of things. But what I'm focusing on is how linguistic authority was centralized in the classroom. So how, what discursively teachers were doing and also the textbook was doing to kind of limit student participation in 
talking about English or this or their kind of input in what counted as English. So I see a lot of framings that kind of keep the expertise in either the text itself, like the, the textbook or whatever curriculum, curricular resources are being used or in the teacher. Um, so and part of that is using like a set uh, kind of closed linguistic system as the model of language uh, rather than something that's more flexible in a class an individual lesson that might look like having a vocab list and using the same words over and over again without eliciting any input or um, any words from the students uh, very little discussion about variation uh, pretty much no discussion within the curriculum but some discussion introduced by the teachers um, and a big focus on templatic kind of repetition so the model of learning being the teacher or the text presenting this form that the students are then supposed to re replicate. Um, and then that in turn, so the, this is kind of, I'm interested in how does standardization happen in practice? And so this is one thing that I'm looking at is just kind of discursively how it happens. How are you able to make something like a standard happen? And I think that a big part of that is limiting the amount of people who have have say in what counts as language or proper language or good language or standard language. Um, then part of it is also focusing on certain features. So what I'm seeing in these classrooms and what I've seen in other classes is a focus on features that have been historically racialized um, or features that have been historically associated with racialized uh, forms in English. So this is things um, like see a lot of talk about interdentals, which I think anyone who talks um, about English or teaches English will um, have some familiarity with. So interdentals meaning like TH sounds, so like, or th, which I have no idea if those sounds will come out <laughs> in the recording, but um, sounds that are not super important for intelligibility, but get a lot of attention. Uh, things like verbal uh, inflection. So the sounds at the end, often at the end of words in English um, that mark tense or aspect. Um, so things like present tense at the end of the word, like um, he walks versus he walks. Um, something they get focused on a lot. Um, and then, and other types of inflection as well. And then just general final sounds. And so sometimes that would come up with kind of overlaps with inflection. Some of it might be, um, separate from inflection. So if you're thinking like I have examples from a class where the, the teacher is correcting a student's pronunciation of another, actually a pronunciation of their own name, um, which is a whole nother thing, but uh, so pronouncing a name like Carlos, but uh, really emphasizing that the last syllable, um, or sorry, the last sound, the last segment. And so what I'm trying to work out is how exactly I think from the way that they're talked about in class and from some of the commentary from the teachers and from my own knowledge of how linguistics has tended to talk about different varieties of English, that I think those are related to um, a racialized view of English um, or of, of standardization, um, but that's what I'm unpacking right now. So, now the, um... Oh, that didn't happen last time. 
because I've been I've listened to that transcript a bunch of times now. It didn't happen, so I don't know what's going on. Because you were in the same place, the Boston picture was behind you. Um, uh, I, you know, this standardization. I mean, the show is called Unstandardized English, right? So, like, that's obviously something that's pretty interesting to me. You know, who's deciding what is and isn't English, or who's deciding what's proper? Like, I remember, you know, I feel bad sometimes because I think about when I first, first but pretty early on in my career teaching the language, those are the things that I noticed were noticeable, right? TH, uh, third person singular S, you know, those sort of things because they were things that I noticed that people could always point to to say, you are not a quote unquote native speaker, not to me, but to my students. Right. Um, or I don't even know that people were saying it to, my, to me about my students, but my students would tell me that people said it to them mm -hmm. uh, or it was implied. So they would say they wanted to work on that. And so we'd work on it. And I wasn't, I didn't have the perspective to think about what it meant that these utterly not inconsequential but just you know they didn't really change the meaning of what the people were saying or their ability to be understood right if all it did was mark that they came from a different linguistic background um, or had you know gained the language in some different way from the people that they were speaking to and all it meant to the people that they you know the interlocutor or whatever was Oh, this person's different from me, and I feel a certain way about that. Um, <laughs> not yeah. I don't know what you're saying, but <laughs> you know you are lesser um, because of these things. So, and I, I, you know, when I say I feel bad. I focused on it, not to yeah. when I was upset with my students, but like this was something that I could notice. Right. And, I think all of us who teach English have done that. You know, and. I didn't think about the, the racial aspect of it, partially because although it's racialized, it's not just one race mm -hmm. that it's focused on. You know, it's like, uh, it's really just not white, right? <laughs> like that they're, they're focused on. Um, and also because I really thought I was being helpful. And so when I think about that, and there goes my son in the background. <laughs> um, when I think about that, I think like, there's no reason for that to be harped upon aside from people wanting to hold on to their position as not just experts but sole or few experts you know um and it reminds me of do you have you heard of the podcast uh, you're wrong about which i've heard of it i have not listened i have gone through the entire back catalog <laughs> since i have been home um, I think I got about one left, but, um, basically, and I will tag them when I post this, they respond, they respond to my tags. They seem, they, they, they actually read what I write on Twitter. I don't know. Oh. Um, but they, um, they talk about some, usually pop culture or political thing that happened in the seventies to nineties and say, actually the real story was more complicated. Mm -hmm. So you're wrong about it. And one thing they talked about was the admonics controversy from the 90s. Do you remember that whole thing? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I was not really aware of it when it was happening, but yeah. I have taught it many times when I teach sociolinguistics. Right. So the whole thing, I'm not about to tell you about it, you know about it, but like when you think about how just mad gut that this, I mean, we don't really call it anybody's anymore, but that AAE would be seen as legitimate. Mm. And, and what I found, now that's not surprising to me, but what I find at what I also find not surprising, but interesting and a little bit sad is that there were obviously a lot of Black people who agreed with the, you know, decision not to legitimize it. Because we, yes, I'm speaking for all of us Black folks right now, have also been taught the same things. We Mm -hmm. thought, you know, um, that the way that we speak is wrong that we need to speak a certain way in certain places. Um, and if you are out of that box, then you are not speaking properly or you're not speaking standard English. You're not speaking academic English, as they might say, depending on what context you're talking about. So we would say that to validate Ebonics, A-A-E, you know, A-A-B-E, whatever, um, is, to say, is, is to accept mediocrity you know, and um, which means a whole bunch of things. And people also, and one thing, I mean, you know this, that the whole thing with like racial linguistics is that people would think that that's not the same conversation as, you know, boundaries between codified languages. Mm. You know, like, you know, we're talking about this and people clearly see how that is racialized. You know, they may not have recognized the, 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 you know, deficit mindset involved until they learn about it, but no one, no one would see that this thing that's about Black people is not related to race, right? But they may not connect it to that same conversation, but being mapped onto a Spanish speaker learning English, you know, because that same situation with uh, academic English or, you know, so versus what they used to call social English, things like that, you know, so... I think it's really important, not just for the language studies field, which is just what I'm calling all of it, mm-hmm. um, but also for just teaching in general. Right. I mean, I teach uh, linguistics for teachers at City College, and this is a conversation that we always have. And I mean, kind of similar to what you're saying, often the students that have the most pushback are students who are um, people of color who particularly students who have changed their own linguistic practices and who have maybe gone through um, educational experiences that are different than either the rest of their family or other people maybe that they grew up with and have seen them themselves be kind of exceptional. Um, and so they, they know what chances they got and they want to be able to extend those to their students. And, and I honor that. Like I have not, um, I am a white person. I was never had to experience that in terms of my language being policed or being forced to change. Um, and so I'm never going to tell a student who's had a different or a teacher who's had a different experience from me that what they have to do. But what I will ask them to think about is how, one, how many of their students are actually going to be able to have that exceptional experience? How much the word exceptional means, right? Right. Um, But like how many of them, okay, let's say a few students get to, they change enough about themselves that somehow they're able to assimilate and be accepted, but that's 
clearly not gonna happen with most students. The whole thing is set up to be only available to a select few. Um, think about the way that, think, thinking of using a theory of race that is a little bit more complex than just, these features are associated with racialized people or black people or um, whatever Latinx people, whatever subgroup you wanna think about. And that's why they are stigmatized rather than if you're a person of color, your language is gonna be stigmatized and people might find kind of infinite reasons to stigmatize you. Um, and then kind of going along with that also having a better theory of social change or idea of social change, what actually causes social change. Um, and that's the conversation that I, I try to have with teachers and with students, with English students too, um, of what is actually going to be helpful for them in their communities. So you sort of talked about this when we talked the other time, people can be like, what other time? It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, just pretend we were talking before this, but, um, you talked about the theory of social change, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And mm -hmm. I think what um, what gets to me, what I've been thinking about, I was I was kind of mad before I was talking to you. Not about you. It just, just, happened, <laughs> just happened to be mad. Um, and because I've been thinking, like, so we're do you know, doctoral students, right? Mm. And, you know, trying to get some publications here and there. And, you know, we, whatever our end, our main goal is long-term, uh, we want to have jobs and whether we want our jobs to be tenure track or we want our jobs to just be other forms, th that's not my point. Ultimately, for people like us, we want in some way to effect, um, and by that I'm, I'm using the one with an E as in to cause, <laughs> um, Oh, I studied those ones, uh, social change in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, our lens, we're working on things related to language and race. Um, but like, something I wanna bang my head against the wall because like, well, let's speak theoretically here. Theoretically, both of us could have been published in the same journal. <laughs> um, and theoretically, Theoretically, both of us could have been writing about things that were slightly challenging to the status quo that uh, provided, you know, different lenses. Let's call this section different lenses. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I wonder how, if one is a person who wants to effect social change, is it more beneficial to be I don't want to say relegated, but let's say relegated to the different lens section um, <laughs> than to mm -hmm. be, um, because I think about this sometimes, you know, you get the publication, you're not going to complain. But uh, like in the long term, who, we don't get stats on how many people read these articles. It has nothing to do with this journal. It's just how it is, right? Mm. Yeah, you, you know, down the line, you might get some citation stats, but like, you don't actually know how people read it. Right. Um, and let's just say, 
you could send it to one's whole network and I'm sure that I did. I mean, the article's like two pages, not that hard to read. Um, and I tend, to, at least myself, I try to write in really accessible language. What does that mean? I know, but still. <laughs> um, so probably maybe a couple hundred people have read it overall. But like, I go on the internet. I'm getting to, I'm getting to my point. Mm. I, go, I go on the internet and like, I was thinking about the stuff that I'm interested in with like, uh, with whiteness and language and how I want to ultimately, I keep saying this, affect social change in education by really repositioning the way whiteness is looked at because, you know, race is looked at, right? And everything is often looked at from the white perspective. Okay, fine. We've now moved to a point where that isn't necessarily always the case. So there is an entire sub-discipline looking at whiteness. But like, how many of the people looking at whiteness are white and they're talking and, and like how the people who have the jobs talking about the whiteness, mm -hmm. are they, I'm just like, I would rather they do that than do other things. <laughs> like, I'm glad they're doing that, but it's, it's still like, are people only listening to them because they're white in the first place? So it's like, it's, it's like, so who's actually going to listen to someone who's not part of the, group, the dominant group saying something about what the dominant group is doing. Now I'm saying this to you being part of that group, but like uh, it's, you know, I see this and there's just all of these websites of very serious faced white women and their, <laughs> and their work on whiteness. And they usually have glasses and dark hair, but <laughs> they, they, they do look the same, but not everyone looks, but whatever, it's anti-hegemonic humor, but you get my point. Um, <laughs> it's like, I'm just like- I mean, it's fine. You called me Kelly earlier. I know us white <laughs> girls are all interchangeable. Um, yeah, that was, was close to your name, though. Yeah. Um, I, I, that was kind of my point. I was just like thinking like, I, I'm going to do all this stuff and who's actually going to listen to me? you know? Right. I mean, I'm thinking about even, so, I mean, we, you and I had a Twitter exchange about um, citations and citing people of color and citing women. And I am, I am continually in my current dissertation project trying to make those citations more diverse, but then I also look at all of the work that has been done and I guess I think about that even when I'm looking at this kind of canonical citation that I might have that is a white person talking about colonial theories of race and how they intersect with language or something like that. And I just wonder whose work are they using? Um, and I don't, and sometimes, I mean, I, I hope to be able to spend some, some of my writing time unpacking that or figuring maybe not unpacking that in the writing itself but in figuring out that kind of lineage but there's a lot of us white people who even if we're trying to do good work we're really benefiting from the labor of people who have been directly impacted or are part of communities or have intimate relationships with communities that have been marginalized and then I get to read about it. And that's, I don't know, that's problematic, but it, like you said, I don't really know exactly. I don't think that that means that white people shouldn't be doing that work or doing that reading, but um, credit is not going where it's due. 
I did. So I, I found more interest in my. Yeah, sometimes my professors pay attention to what I do on here, but whatever. <laughs> I have found more interest sometimes in these little side projects that I do in my schoolwork. I, I, this, the schoolwork, I'm bringing my side projects into my schoolwork. Like the altruistic shield, I literally sat down last spring and said, you know, I had one class I had to take last summer and they said, you can do an independent study. And I asked the professor, I said, I want to write an article and get it published. She said, okay. So I wrote an article and I got it published. Um, <laughs> so that was my class. I just like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna write, I'm just gonna come up with an idea. I have an idea. Um, and she was like, okay. So I did that. I'm gonna do it again in fall. Whether or not I get published is one thing, but I have this chapter that I got accept or the proposal, but the scene, you know what I mean? Um, and that's gonna take a year and a half to get out there, right? Uh, and that's when things, that's when things going correctly. So first of all, what the fuck person I will be by November of 2021. <laughs> no idea. Like, I'm going to look at that and be like, and people are gonna be like, wow, you said this, you know, I would have said that. I'm like, I know I would have said that now too, but you yeah. Know, I like, what right is the now. world going to be like then? Yeah, exactly. You know? Um, in fact, I, on the one, on the one hand, like you don't want to be disaster capitalism person, but on the other hand, like I, I think my work, because that's about, uh, you know, multiple marginalizations and race and disability and, and things about myself. Um, and I think, not to get too far into it, not that it's personal, just in the sense that it's not really what we're talking about, but um, there's gonna be a lot of kids with mood disorders after this, right? Yeah. And the article is about how I was isolated and I ended up with several and no one really paid attention to it. Um, and how that shaped me in a space that was full of really nice white people. Mm. Um, it was my middle school and high school college was full of mean white people so that you know that's always going to be bad but like you know people know what the ivy leagues are like i don't need to be the i'm not there's nothing new revealing the people that ivy leagues are you know not all but many of them are just mean and terrible but like talking about how i went to it see now i'm talking about it um a very, a very uh unique private school that thought it was better than other private schools because mm. it didn't have uniforms and proms and all that stuff um, so it was where you sent your kids to be like, I want to send them to a private school, but not a regular private school. Uh, so they were all very creative and they have puppet parades and so forth. Um, I like the puppet parades, but they, they weren't really any better. They just weren't paying attention to anything about race because they didn't know any better. Well, you know what I mean? They didn't realize that they didn't know that much about race. Right. But I say all of that <laughs> to say the first side project, this is all because I said about side projects. The first side project I did was last fall. Oh no, I guess it's the second side project because I wrote the Artemis Show first was I decided um, I'm going to, I got a grant out of the blue um, and I decided to use the money to spend time. Well, basically I decided that my labor was worth money. So I didn't really use the money for anything besides like, I read a bunch of articles um, and I was Good like, I'm going to pay myself for my labor is what I'm going to do. Uh, but I didn't need to spend, I didn't need to do any, spend any money to do it. So I just, it's just, I furthered my research anyway. Um, and I went and I started looking at the citations and I, what I figured was, I'm just going to look up all of these people cited and see if I can find a picture of them. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um or details about them sometimes people look a certain way you don't know what you mean. 
Um, and the good thing about it is that people do tend to cite fairly recent things, and most people, most academics have some website somewhere. Mm. Um, and so I had to make decisions, though. Sometimes, first of all, you would get an article with like 17 citations, it didn't take very long. Sometimes you get an article with like 79 citations. And I was like, um, <laughs> and I, you should, I had this like notebook where I was like, I would make two columns and I would make a column of racialized scholars and a column of white scholars, mm -hmm. right? And see, and then, and, then, and then I would calculate the percentage, right? And I was just trying to make, a, then I had two, it was a matrix that I was making. I said, all right, here's the article. And I had a spreadsheet. Here's the article. I kept track of a couple of things, like what year it came out, what was the subject, were these, because I was looking specifically at language related articles to mm -hmm. see how bad it was in our field. Um, and so I said, first of all, is this actually a language journal? Because sometimes you write a language thing and it's not in the language journal. Mm -hmm. um, and then second of all, are the authors racialized or at least the lead author? Because sometimes it's like nine authors, I cannot do this. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, the lead, you know, one of the two lead authors. And then I looked up the people who are cited and I looked up a percentage and I tried to see, and then also I made a, which is why I wouldn't pass any kind of IRB, but it's just me <laughs> looking at stuff. Uh, I made a binary decision on whether the article seemed to have an explicitly socially justice intent. Like what was it looking at? You know, right. like there's articles that had findings that were related to social justice, but like there's an article where you're going in and you're like, look at this type of inequity and so forth. And then there's an article that's just like, what did the, like article that said like research on the career paths that people who graduated from this program did. And I was like, huh. Sure. Um, so uh, as it wouldn't surprise you, basically it didn't matter whether it was uh, if you were like a white, as far as I could tell, a white scholar cited about half as many racialized scholars as scholars of color did. And a scholar, whether they were white or not white, who was writing about non-social justice issues cited half as many as, mm -hmm. as other things. So it wasn't even that, so like it was also showing if you were white, you certainly had the ability to do it. But generally speaking, if you were white and you were writing about some nonsense, you weren't going to do it. <laughs> um, but it also showed probably, like probably, scholars of color are not getting published to write about the type of stuff that's cited in nonsense articles, right? So like if you're writing about social justice, first of all, you are someone who's making a point to cite scholars of color, or that's what you're reading. And second mm -hmm. of all, if you're just writing a boring foundational article then the foundational material is going to be white right and i think this kind of goes back to your like getting siloed into this like um i'm trying to remember what different lens um <laughs> category of and you know sometimes i think there's a benefit to being labeled as being um social justice focused or being radical like this might be a signal that is helpful for people who are trying to find that thread um, or it can be, I mean, it can, it, there's a, there's a benefit and there's like a real, uh, like ideological purity to refusing to kind of be part of the mainstream institution, but you lose out a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think about that a lot because I think like what, 
you know, we're students now, so we're both part of institutions, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, six, seven years from now, I don't know what's going to be going on. And, like, um, I think what what is actually going to be the way that the most people, and I don't just mean numbers, like the mass public, although that would be nice if it was, if, an, if a radical idea caught fire, and, you know, that'd be nice. But I really just mean someone outside of the small circles that we tend to run in, because... We all seem very interesting to our friends, <laughs> and, and and you know, I'll get like eleven likes on like some hot fire post, um, and I'm just like, yeah, that one's good. Um, but and, and you know what? I got like a thousand followers, but it's not like fifty thousand because the people yeah. who do this sort of thing—that's that's not. It's it's a little. I don't want to be pretentious about it, but I want to say it's it's. Most, especially people now stuck online all day, like, you know, you really have to be interested in this sort of thing to be paying attention to it beyond the slightest glance. It's not easy, nor should it be. But the problem with that is that most people, and this is not an insult because I used to be this way, don't want to, things to be, people are stressed and they don't want to necessarily deal with something that's more complicated than they need to, not just right now, but just in general. So how do I make it, so, but then how do you make it so that it's consumable by more people without contradicting yourself or, or making yourself um, compromising, you know? Right. Um, I think about, um, I think about white spaces a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. um, places that are literally like physical spaces and places that are ideologically white spaces you know and one of the, the the theme of the article is that I was in a white space and I didn't realize it I mean I knew it but I didn't think about the I mean I was a kid right I didn't think about the concept of a white space and I think you, you, white space doesn't even have to be predominantly populated by white people right it can be constructed by it and for it and I mean you know this um and when I think that, you know, um, even places that are aiming to resolve social justice issues, if they're still constructed in this way, like I know you've talked about at that other time that we talked um, <laughs> about how you tend to use materials from, you know, non-white spaces, you know, in your classes, um, how these things are really not astroturf, right? Grassroots materials that um, your students can then really benefit from because it actually feels authentic. But how do you get, you know, that shift where people understand that something being used or being discussed is not originating in a white space and the difference in that? You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a it's a huge question I mean I feel like that's like almost like having a question of like religious conversion of like how do you get someone to have faith and have a different worldview um and well, it's, it's kind of like a religion isn't it yeah. you know whiteness is like a it's uh you know you gotta yeah it's like you go to it and you know you you tithe yourself to it so forth um, and I think it to some degree it is, I mean, maybe not spiritual, but it is a practice that it extends much, it's far beyond either like intellectual kind of exercise and beyond anything that you can tell someone to do. 
I mean, when I think about this, what I often, what comes to mind is, remember after I read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and I was very fired up about it, and um, I started following Michelle Alexander on online, and then shortly after that, she announced that she was taking a leave of absence from practicing law, and she was going to Union Theological Seminary because she felt like through her work of looking at how uh, mass incarceration kind of became the new form of Jim Crow and of slavery, that changing the laws wasn't enough, that you could change the laws and people were gonna keep doing the same thing. Um, and so she was interested in this kind of more, how do you change people and what they think? Um, so she went to the seminary, <laughs> um, which is an extreme move, but I think there's something instructive in that, that it's, it's a deep, I mean, it's, you, it's choosing kind of what people you're going to have as your allies in life um, and who people, like where you're going to cast your lot and then learning from them and figuring out how you're going to work together. And that's a huge endeavor that I think is not something that you can just like teach in a class. I mean, yeah, because I think like, you know, we all get this way, academics, right? You know, sometimes I'm just like, what are we doing? We're just talking to each other, right? Um, and you know, you came up with an idea and it's like, oh, that's a good idea. I will build upon your idea. Oh, it's a good idea. I'll build upon your idea. But let us look at 42 articles that have said the same thing. Oh, wow. There's the gap. And like, you know, it just gets so, so masturbatory sometimes. And, <laughs> and, but like, like I, I get why we have to learn these practices because it, it's a language, right? When we think about language, like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to say academic language in that exclusionary way, but I mean, in the sense of like, um, not in a like academic versus social, but academic like academia, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just want to be clear that I'm not saying it in the like you you can speak the academic language, but you know, English academic, you know what I'm saying. Um but uh it is an entire language that we're having to learn or that we have learned to do this. And um it is it has a lot of rules, um, most of which are arbitrary. Um, and that were create a standardization, like you said, that were created um, arbitrarily and then are different within different disciplines for no real particular reason. Um, <laughs> and uh, they'll say, in the same way that like, they're like, well, we're, you know, this, this one place is going to be really hard on the APA. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, I'll, I'll do it then. Um, but on the other hand, I'm like, APA is actually kind of easy to use. But like, <laughs> like compared to some of the other ones, I'm just like, eh, you know, like, because you, you do have to cite stuff, right? So it's like, in what way <laughs> shall I cite stuff? Um, but then it's, you know, I wonder, like, how do you break out of, of that? You know, I don't mean like becoming a celebrity or something like that. But, you know, I do this mostly for mostly because my wife got annoyed at me talking too much last summer. Um, so now I talk to you people, but um, like, how do you get to where these ideas take hold in the populace? Um, because, um, you know, I don't think that, that, that they're not going to disappear altogether, but I don't think that the, the way that they, exist the journal system is going to be the way that knowledge is advanced um beyond the fact that it is part of a tenure dossier or whatever 
um, you know, I'm glad that I got in that one time and we'll be in the chapter and so forth. And yeah, I'll keep submitting because well, what else do you do with the research? But like, uh, I don't. Right. I mean, it's very, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like a person who even has enough reach to like think about how my ideas are being taken up by the world. And I doubt that I ever will. Um, but I mean, my, I think it's easier to see as a teacher. Um, and, I, and at this point I'm saying, I mean, we could talk about English teaching, but when I teach in the university, um, you know, you get little moments of like, okay, this person is, maybe they're not going to change the, the way that they're talking about something, but like, they're telling me something different that they're going to do. Um, and that's exciting. How does it go into the mainstream? I mean, I think just might not, I mean, that what, this is when like this a whole question of can the mainstream change or are you just trying to build resistance against it? I mean, I'm sorry, I just entered this conversation in a weird mood. Um, <laughs> uh, I usually, Sometimes. We yeah. all just come into the, wherever we're at, you know. Uh, I usually enter these things very calm. Um, and I have to wake myself up during them because I'm trying to be very measured, but I'm not in that headspace right now. Um, well, on the other hand, maybe I'll get, maybe more people will be like, wow, he's all fired up. We should listen to it. <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, because, you know, you want to to have good ideas and have the ideas validated by people whom you respect. On the other hand, you have to make a living. Like, the second half of that sentence is always the question mark. <laughs> right. Um, so, it's like, um, you don't want to be someone who's, who goes so craven as to to abandon your ideals but like for anyone to think that none of their ideals will ever be compromised is it's just not it's not going to happen um and that's the question is what what is what is the trade-off right where where does the trade-off happen um i mean i would say i feel like you know when we ask these things of ourselves I think it gets very messy and um a lot of guilt can come in and which I don't I don't think guilt is always a bad thing but I mean I like I said I have these conversations also with my students especially my students who are teachers and you know I don't fault anyone for I mean you you have to like fight for your own survival you have to let yourself live and figure out what you need to live um but I think figuring out like how much wiggle room you have in that, like what you do the thing you need to do and then you see what else you can do. Um, which like not, not an exact calculus at all, but um, you know, we, we figure out where we have power and where we have flexibility and where we can push things a little bit. I think we at least start there. I was struck when we talked before about how you sort of noticed pretty early on, I'm not going to get too into some of the stuff you said, but just you seem to find yourself without having the language for it, um, a little bit more uncomfortable in predominantly white spaces than others might be, you know, <laughs> I mean, no, it's just what's kind of what you said, right? Um, you just sort of noticed a distance internally, um, from 
from these spaces. Now, that's not even necessarily the same as what we were just talking about, about power and changing and, and ideals. But, you know, that's, I wonder for you, because I can't answer this question. It's not, I've, I will always have had that difference. It's obvious for me that there is a difference, even though I couldn't put words to it when I was a child. But I wonder for you how, how that felt to to feel a little bit different from the people around you, even though you may have seemed to be you know, outwardly more similar. Right. Well, I mean, I think this is why, like how we know, or one of the ways, one of the ways I know that whiteness is not just about skin color, that there are aspects of the way I grew up or aspects of, of my family that people felt were odd, um, given the way that I looked. And I've had that experience. Um, I mean, I had it a lot through school, but I, I, I'm even thinking about uh, one of the teachers I observed for my for my project, I would tell her things about myself or my childhood or my family, and she would tell me like your family is crazy, and she would say it in like a way that I think she felt was kind of like neutral and silly, and it was fine. I mean, it's fine. I'm an adult now, but um, when I mean, it's an odd experience being told like having someone kind of see you and seem like at first accept you and then hear things about you and then say like, actually you seem like pretty strange or you're not what I expect. Um, and I think that is part of what made me not really into that system in the first place because it didn't really seem like it even had a place for me and it's supposed to be like designed for me. And I still didn't feel like, I could be who I was and like my, that my family could be who they were and be accepted. What I think is that it's not really for almost like, it's not really for very many people at all. Right. Like, it's actually not good for almost anyone. It's good for yeah. like two people. Like, yeah. It's not good for humans. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it, it's like unhealthy and, you know, and it's damaging. And I think that it's, uh, you have to do a lot to be comfortable with it, you know, to sit comfortably in it. And I tried, you know, to find my place in it for a long time because it was all that was around me. And I didn't, again, I didn't have words for it, but, you know, you, you try to mimic, to follow things. Um, or I did. And, you know, understanding that it's never going to, to change itself, um, it's up to you, is, is freeing, but it's also scary because it's like, okay, now where do I go? You know, where do I sit? You know? Um, and because I think of like, it's not quite the same thing, but it's similar. When, um, when I've been, it, um, when I've had people give me these like bigoted things in confidence, and I'm not expecting it. I don't mean I don't mean about me. I mean that's happened to me, but that's not in confidence. That's you know an attack or whatever, right? It's linguistic mm -hmm. violence against me. But when people have shared linguistic violence with me about other people, and I'm not expecting it because they think that I'll agree is yeah. when I'm just like, 
and then I get sort of annoyed. I'm like, what, what made you think that I would agree with you? Um, like, what about me made you think that that would be something that I would agree with? Not just someone who's frustrated, and I'm not saying that's okay, but it's different if someone's just venting and I'm there, but like someone who really wants to tell me this secret or something. I remember when I was 17, I was in, where was I? Aruba on vacation. And it was with my family, you know. Um, and the funny thing is I went back to a hotel near there two years ago. And like the same hotel was there. But anyway, I was there and there were, I was 17. I just graduated high school. And my sister was 11. So there was this group of teenagers and preteens who were like from my sister's age to my age. I was like the oldest, which is weird because then I'm like hanging out with these 14 year olds, but like there's nobody there. It was like, I couldn't really hang out with the adults. So I was like, what am I going to do? Um, anyway, there were a bunch of kids from Florida who were Hispanic or, or I guess Latinx, but at the time I think they called themselves Hispanic. I don't mean they, I mean these particular kids. I don't mean Latina dot or something like that. Um, anyway, they all often spoke Spanish to each other as people do. Um, and I, being immature, was frustrated. And, you know, I said to a white guy who was from New Jersey, an adult, right, an adult, um, I said to him, just generally, man, they keep going off and speaking in Spanish. And I was just, I felt left out that I couldn't understand them. So -hmm. what I was saying, not necessarily a great thing to say, but it wasn't these people are bad. It was just, I'm frustrated that I cannot be part of this conversation. And then he shares with me some fully racist shit. And I'm like, (laughs) and he walks away and he's like laughing, but he's like, he thought that he like, I'm like, no, no, I'm not on your, sir, sir. No, no, sir. (laughs) You know, like this is this like 40 year old man. Like, what am I going to do? You know? Um, And I just said, why do you, I just, I thought, I think I still remember it because I'm just thinking, what was it? about what I said that made him think that I thought it was bad that they were, no, I just felt left out because I was a lonely 17 year old. Um, And I wonder if that's happened to you, not that, but like he was talking to me and he was seeing me as a person who is not a Spanish speaker. Therefore we are bonded in our mutual hatred of the Spanish speakers, which was not the case, but that's what he saw. But I have to imagine This is the one thing, like, I think racialized people know as much or more about white people than white people know about white people. But the only thing we can't know about white people is what white people say to white people when it's only white people. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, luckily, I feel like I don't know everything that they say. Um, I mean, so this is that I, and I've been seeing a lot of people talk about, um, about, little fires everywhere on Uh on Twitter. And, and I was thinking before I read the book and I was reading an article with the, um, an interview with the author before I watched the, the show. And she was saying that, you know, she has, she wrote part of what she intended to do with writing. This was writing to the white ladies who are like Elena, like trying to kind of hold up a mirror and, an experience she's had since she's written it since she wrote the book was having people come up and be like, Oh my gosh, Elena is terrible. Like these white women just like recognize this terrible, but see, see nothing in common. Um, so, I mean, I think about that of like when I watch portrayals like that, like, am I like that? (laughs) Are, 
are people around me doing things like this and I'm not either they're not doing it in my presence or I'm not really understanding how it um how it feels for other people I mean I think that at this point a lot of I'm not in spaces where people say something like that to me very often but what I have happened more often so I'm from Southern California and I have you know some of my family is more conservative and and then like their extended networks are more conservative and then also just kind of you know people friend friends parents things like that um I'll have experiences where I'm talking to them and I feel like I often get accused of politicizing things but you know I, I guess I'm thinking about like that comment from this guy like this is a person politicizing or like creating this larger commentary based on this kind of offhand comment you made and I feel like that happens to me a lot that I say something and somebody like well it's because of Obama blah 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 and it's like I, I didn't didn't know that was going to happen at all um so I forget sometimes because I don't I mean I, I've been fortunate enough to travel a lot of places in the world but I haven't traveled as much around the country I mean I've been to California I've been you know but like to like places that are off the beaten path in the country right and I went to Disney World, which is not off the beat, but uh, it's, <laughs> but it's different from New York. Yeah, it's Florida, right? Now you could be from anywhere and be in Disney World, but this was not a like one of the like campus hotels or whatever. It's just a hotel nearby, but it was more like people who could be going to Florida generally. This is January 2012, so I don't know if you remember, but Tim Tebow was like good at football for like a year, um, and this was the year that he was good. Mm-hmm. He was in the the playoffs and I was tired of his sanctimonious, like pro-life bullshit. And Mm -hmm. I did not say this, but I was talking to my stepdad or someone, I don't know who I was talking to. Maybe I was talking to the bartender, but he was losing in the game. I was like, you know, I, uh, I don't remember exactly what I said because it was just an offhand comment. I said, good or something like, I'm glad he's losing. And someone turns to me and goes, so you hate Tebow, huh? And I'm like, and I started stammering. I was like, no, no, I just, you know, I just, I'm rooting for the other team. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, not getting into this one in Florida. Nope. Um, Because he's from Florida. Like that's like Mm -hmm. his place. I didn't think about, I don't think about these things, you know? Um, I don't, I forget being from New York. There's a lot of people from New York, but I forget like in other parts of the country, the fact that people are from there is like a big deal. Um, I don't know if he's from Florida, but I know he went to college in Florida. But anyway, it's like things like that, you know? And I realized in going back and writing the chapter that I'm writing that like people used to use me as their black friend shield thing for terrible things that they were saying. And I didn't realize it because they were saying it in a really somewhat subtle or sophisticated way. What I think about Elena <laughs> and like, Little Fires Everywhere is that when I first was like, this is over the top, but then I like, you know, towards the end and it got worse and worse. And I'm thinking to myself like, is it though? Um, because like people aren't really that good at speaking. Like they're mm-hmm. not. Like, um, the, so if you remember Crash, which is bad, yeah. but... <laughs> The problem with Crash wasn't the super, like, I think the people think that the problem with Crash is 
the fact that the dialogue is very on the nose. I don't actually think that's the problem with Crash. People actually do kind of talk like that sometimes. <laughs> the problem with Crash is that it's just very hokey. Like, like you know, the resolution to everything is, is nonsense. And the, the fact that they think they're making a point by showing how racism can be solved. Like, if it was just them being racist, first of all, it wouldn't have, like, the reason that it was successful is because it showed the solving. <laughs> like, like it showed yeah. a resolution to it. If they just been racist and they left it at that, it might have actually been kind of interesting. Um, because so the, the reason I'm pointing that out is that like Elena, although the show wasn't all that explicit in terms of like slurs or anything like that, when, when people, like people, people are not that good at talking. Mm -hmm. So like people say ugly stuff because like this guy said, you hate T-Bone, huh? Like this is, this is how people talk. It's not, <laughs> it, it's. Right. I mean, I do research in, I'm, or I'm not collecting data anymore, but I was in classrooms recording, um, teach, I mean, recording what the students and the teacher were saying. And sometimes I share quotes and people are like horrified by them. People are like, this is not, no one would say this. It's like, actually they do. And it's not so much that they're so, bad what people are saying but they're often it's like really just something that seems kind of cringy or is really oversimplified and offensive and people do say things like that a lot when they're just talking and it just passes by in a normal conversation you know because I wonder about this because like one of my insidious ideas is to get a bunch of white people to rat on their friends um <laughs> like when they're in these spaces and the mm. people say these things because I think sometimes you get these cringy comments in research but it's still a research context yeah so like there it's still a a type of language that even if it's bad you know it's still within the you ask them a question um and it came out a certain way you know the, the like I want some like real discourse analysis of the shit why people say to each other when they trust each other um, and then to make it so that they stop trusting each other. That, that's my idea. Like in the long term, <laughs> in the long term, it spreads around and everyone's like, is this white person going to snitch on me to Justin? I better not say anything. And then they have no one to talk to and then they stop saying and I have solved racism. But um, <laughs> that doesn't make everyone afraid that there's just like a mole around. That's my idea though. Like I'm joking, but I'm not really joking. I'm not really joking. I just don't know how to do it empirically. Um, but like, I like don't think you pass IRB. That's the thing. Yeah. But on the other hand, do I want IRB? Like, do I want them involved? Probably that's not. the thing. I don't know if I, I kind of just want to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, um, but I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know how to make it work. I am thinking about that. But the point of all of this being like, because I really do want to do that. Like I was thinking I was going to do it like in five years, but I'm too impatient. So, uh, you know, I might just get my, my army of snitches together. You know, we'll see. <laughs> Because like that, like that, that's, it's the fact that it's not official research. And if the people don't actually record it, it's not illegal. Um, I mean, because you're just saying what some, you know, it's just hearsay. Um, is like, I, uh, I don't think that's really been all that captured. So we see things like Little Fires Everywhere which is still written from something of an outsider perspective because she didn't live in the house with Elena. I mean, Elena's fictional, right? But like, so she made her up, mm -hmm. right? 
she's supposing it based on her research, but again, she's not there. She can't, she literally can't mean an all white space because she's not white, <laughs> you know? Right. So, I mean, and I think this is a hard, so maybe doing your surreptitious like recording changes things, but I think I it's I said, I'm not, I said, I'm not going to record. Yeah. Okay. They're just going to um, tell me. They're just going to tell me what happened. You know, I think that part of the issue is like when you have someone who's an insider, they don't even, you know, there's things that are happening that they don't even register well, as that's being. It. That's it. Yeah. Um, that's why all the people said Elena is bad. This never happened in my life. It's right. like, are you sure? I, I it didn't. It, so the whole reason the altruistic shield came about, I mean, the term is because I thought it was a cool term, but the idea was like, I read, um, it's, there's a summary in the article, but it's a sentence. But like the real thing that happened is I was at AERA last year and I probably told you this, but you know, I posted a picture that was data from someone's presentation. I mean, I wasn't like the person, it was not a, it wasn't breaking rules or anything. I was just posting a, you know, like a PowerPoint slide that the person was sharing publicly. And it was like a quote from a teacher they spoke to doing the same thing that you see in research, like a white teacher just saying some ugly shit. And I'm just like, like the things that they're saying to a random researcher who they just, I just trust you, you're white, so whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering what they're saying to someone who's not a researcher is what I'm saying, you know? Right. Um, but anyway, they said some ugly shit and I said, wow, teachers can be gross. And then my friend's wife jumped on to say, teachers work hard. And I'm like, what does that have to do? <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure what that mm -hmm. has to do with what I said. Right. Um, and they're like, <laughs> I just, I didn't get it. And I just said, what is this weird? It wasn't even, because I didn't say teachers are gross. I didn't say all teachers are gross. I said, <laughs> teachers can be gross. I didn't even say the word racist. I just said <laughs> gross, right? Because um, it was also it was also an ableist comic because it was about um, disproportionality. Mm -hmm. uh, and then like she just she was just really mad about it. And then I was sort of shaken by that, not because I'm scared of this woman. I don't like her anyway. But um, <laughs> they, uh, I was just like, what is it that like I didn't I, I said basically nothing. It's like it's I, when people if I post something about race, people don't usually argue with me because they're like I don't want to get into that. But if like but this was like hinting sort of at race, and they're like, well, I feel safe in saying some nonsense to you now. Mm. Um, and I said, what 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 is this just like antenna they seem to have for? a conversation that is on the level that they feel comfortable engaging in, but they want to say some nonsense. And I went and I just went out and I talked to a scholar who was kind enough to speak to me about it. And what she said to me was, you have to quickly gauge whether they really want to talk or if they just want to babble. If they just want to babble, don't talk to them. And if they really want to talk, then engage. And I realized that. So now I don't bother with her um, on these discussions, even though she posts an Instagram story every five seconds. But anyway, um, <laughs> She doesn't listen to this, so whatever. Uh, the uh, I'm just in gossip mode, I guess. Um, <laughs> the uh, the thing, because I I I it can't be 
in the research what I'm talking about because the point is that it wouldn't be a research context. So I can't go look for it in the research because it would not be in a research context is, is what I'm saying. You know, like you have to go and do the search and see if it's already been written 96 times before. And most of the time, you know, when you, when you look at it from the angle of language and whiteness and race, it probably hasn't been written before because it's not all three of those things in one place. They haven't really come up as often as they should have or so forth. You know, they've come up, like you get two pieces of the pie, but you never get all three, you know? Um, so I have to do this. Did you ever see Spider-Man 2 a long time ago? I have not. Oh, so there's a moment when he's, <laughs> He's, he's got a web and he's trying to stop the subway train from falling off. Um, and he's like really holding it like with his arms out like this. And I feel like I have to do that every time I'm building an argument in like one of these things where I want to tie together language and race and whiteness. And I'm like, here is my source from here and mm. here and here. And I'm bringing them all together. I know they don't seem related, but I'm going to bring them together. Like, it makes sense to me, but I, I have to flop sweat my way into making this argument. <laughs> um, and I think I do a pretty good job, but it's still a lot of work. Um, I mean, it is surprising to me. I was talking to someone earlier today about this, about, um, you know, I, so I'm in doing my dissertation proposal right now, and I was originally planning on using this classroom observation data I have and supplementing it with um, interviews with students. And like, I just don't feel like that's gonna be possible for a long time, given the situation here in New York. So I'm pivoting to look more at like document analysis and looking at historical notions of English and English teaching. Um, and it's, there's clearly a lot, there are people talking about language and race. Like, I mean, racio-linguistics is a thing. Um, Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa started a lot of these conversations that many people have picked up, but it's, there's still at least like huge empty spaces um, where it seems like race is a very obvious thing to be talking about. Like I'm thinking about the way that people have talked about English over time and um, there's not a lot of, the race is not brought into that a lot. So then you have to figure out what literatures and ideas and all those things you can bring together and i remember in my quantitative class last spring nope fall um you know i had to do it methods and so forth and i'm glad that i know it so i know not to really do it but um i was writing about you know there's a couple of different like quantitative measurements, different kinds of biases. And I was looking at them to see which one might be viable and so forth. And it was, you know, interesting paper. And I ended up writing about meritocracy and I just went off on my tangents as I do. Um, the paper is way too long, but uh, at the beginning I had to go and my, my professor was like, look, Justin, I understand what you're doing. Um, but, in this you know in this side of the discipline like you gotta come with like numbers and i'm like all right fine so i had to go find a bunch of proof of racism in numbers <laughs> right and like it wasn't really her fault like she's just telling me like this is like you you we, we all need to like learn and speak this version of the language so that you can say all the rest of what you want to say but like who like who was 
who's creating those numbers, right? Um, you know, it's all stuff from like the Brookings Institute and so forth. And like, um, I'm glad that the numbers exist, but you know, if you read those articles, they don't really deep dig into who is causing the problem. They're just like, there's a problem. I don't know. Um, <laughs> look at this problem. I don't know what happened here, but, um, and it's like when they tell you not to write in passive voice and it's because it's, it, it seems like so much is written about race in, in the, not literally, but basically in the passive voice, mm-hmm. you know, like there is no actor and no agency um, in, in the discussion of race. Yeah. I mean, I think at least for me that, you know, we've talked a lot about how there's, you know, ideas that are not accepted in the mainstream or there's gaps in in research or how things are talked about. But in this moment, when I feel very, um, like a lot of despair about many things, I am hopeful when I see that not everyone, not all like the public, but I see like the community does know some of these things regardless of how like it gets covered up in the kind of these official narratives or uh you know information kind of displays people know people in the community know who is harming them and they are trying to develop ways to address it and i don't know right now i'm not feeling super hopeful about academia all the time but i do feel hopeful about about people and what they're what they do for each other 